Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14. Now the last time we saw, oh excuse me, the teens can be dismissed and go with Vinny. The last time we saw several parables uh, when we were in Matthew's gospel in chapter 13, and today we're going to see the loss in Jesus' life and how he responds to it. So I'm going to jump in, 14, starting with verse 1. And it says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. So this is not Herod the Great. Listen, if you follow secular history, you can see the harmony it has with the Bible. The Bible is God's word, but it also is a history book. Uh, This is when Herod the Great died, he had sons, and his kingdom was divided up into uh, regions that his sons uh, became rulers over. So this Herod is Herod Antipas, who had control over Galilee and Perea. Now, he kills John the Baptist, and then he gets these reports about Jesus and the miracles and the feedings and all the things that are happening and thinks that John the Baptist has come back to life. So he knows John the Baptist. He doesn't know that much about Jesus, but based on what he hears, he equates the two. Now, he's probably unnerved. You know, it was a very bad thing for him to do to kill one of God's best prophets. Uh, He certainly, his conscience is probably bothering him. But if you think about it, this was a compliment to John the Baptist. I don't know about you, but if somebody reads the Bible and they read about Jesus and they think about me when they read the Bible, to me, I take that as a compliment. And as people of faith, as believers, we want to reflect the light of Christ. We want to uh, be more like Jesus. So when people hear about Jesus, they think about us or when they see us that we reflect his goodness and his light and his uh, teachings so that they can learn something about God. Verse 3. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now I'm going to stop there because, again, I'm going to fill this in with some secular history. Uh, Herod Antipas had brothers. One of his brothers was Herod Philip. Uh, The way the history books are written is that they, both brothers, met at a function with their wives. There was a lustful attraction between Herod Antipas and uh, his brother Philip's wife. And they decided from from that function, from that point on, she was going to ditch her husband, he was going to ditch his wife, and they were both going to get together. And of course, John the Baptist had a problem with this, understanding that the Herod, or the, the position of Herod, in that leadership role, was a quasi-spiritual position. So John had every right to call out that sin. Verse 5, although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him at the table, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, let me give you a little insight to the relationship of the Herod Antipas, the the captor, and John the Baptist, the captive in prison. 
Uh, if we look at Mark 6.20, it's just one verse. I'll read it. It says, For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So Herod is angry at John for exposing his sin. He, though he enjoys listening to him and he protects him. You know, I try to imagine how this played out. Did he go to the cell once in a while when nobody was looking and ask him questions about the things of God? Did he have John released from prison every once in a while and come into his court in his throne room and talk to him about the things of God? So it's a very odd relationship that this man has with John. And he does protect him, for the most part, until this oath. However, John was an impediment to Herod's lifestyle. See, Herod was a very unstable man. He was double-minded, as the Bible would say, as, as James would say. But be careful of that. And I can't tell you how many times I have recently come across another situation where a person who didn't know the Lord was, again, dabbling with the things of God, interested in learning, but then going headlong back into their lifestyle. And every time the person would get closer to the things of God, but then fall further back into their lifestyle. And, uh, you know, situations that I'm aware of, persons, people get into really bad trouble, sometimes with the law, sometimes morally, because of this dabbling back and forth with the things of God. So be careful of being like a Herod. And for those of us who are believers, sometimes we don't jump in all the way. We don't jump in headlong because we know that we may have to sacrifice something. Be careful of that as well. You know, there are some that are fence-sitters that keep straddling the fence, right? And, and you know, what is it going to take to jump off of that fence and go into where the Lord has, you know, has been wanting to bring you all these years? Verse 6. Oh, excuse me. I'm going to jump to Mark 6 again and read 18 and 19. See, I like to take all the Gospels together and you know, put all the puzzle pieces together and try to paint the best full picture that I can based on all four of their perspectives. It says in verse 18, for John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. In Luke 13, when the Pharisees are telling Jesus, hey, Herod's looking for you, he says, go tell that fox you know, I'm going to do my father's will, and then the third day I'm going to be perfected. In the Greek, the word for fox is feminine. He really says, go tell that vixen. See, Jesus knew. <laughs> Jesus knew who the power was behind the throne. It was Herodias. Very good insight into what's going on here. This is a woman who controlled her husband. She exposed her daughter, her younger daughter, in a sexual manner. If you read the text and you read into the the Greek language, okay? She exposed her daughter, and she was so conniving that she knew that Herod, with the drinking and the partying and the lustful attraction, was going to make a stupid oath and a promise. And she tells her daughter beforehand, when he comes to you, this is what I want you to ask him for. John the Baptist's head on a platter. Listen, the world is filled with evil men, but it's filled with evil women as well, <laughs> You know, and, and I, you know, you just read the paper or go on cable news and you see some of these crazy things that happen that people do. Very sad. A few lessons we can learn from this. Number one, John the Baptist called out sin. Now, we're starting to hear less and less. You turn on the TV and 
Unfortunately, there are those groups that are so extreme, such a poor representation of God. Everyone they meet, they're saying God hates you and you're going to go to hell. That is not a picture of the gospel. You know, if you uh, search engine Westboro Baptist, they protest at military funerals. You see them on interviews. They're just filled with venom. That's not what we're to do. We need to put all this in its proper context. However, especially a position of quasi-spirituality, uh, John the Baptist had the right to call out that sin. And they were corrupt, so they were reticent to uh, call out the sin of Herod. You didn't see any Pharisees in prison with John, did you? They didn't bother, because they had their own sin that they were dealing with. You know, in the emergent church where our elder, uh, Vinnie Whitehead, had uh, spoke about uh, two Wednesdays ago, uh, or last Wednesday, he spoke about the emergent church. And this is a movement now to sanitize the harsher things of the scripture. We don't talk about sin that much. Let's have a, this is what they say, let's have a conversation about God's word and see how much of it is still applicable today. Who are we to sit down and have a conversation about God's word and tell him what we're going to keep and what we're going to throw out? They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about hell. They don't talk about the blood of Christ because it's offensive. But that's not the way we're to live our lives. It was very interesting when Jesus was, at the woman, was with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. She was an unbeliever, and he gently explained spiritual things to her, and he gently exposed her sin, and she got it. I could picture her smirking and going, wow, you know a lot about me. But he brings her into a dialogue and leads her into the kingdom, and she leads the village out to also the Samaritans to hear Jesus. Now contrast that with those who are Christians who should know better. In 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul has some rough things to say about those who claim to be Christians and are in active sin in the church. And this stuff is starting to spread around. He goes, get rid of them. They need to go. They need to be buffeted by Satan for a while. So you can see there's a double standard here, and for good reason. As believers, we should know better. If we put ourselves in any spiritual position, we should know better. So the question is, do we... How do we feel when we're in our peer groups? You know, are we afraid to speak about sin? We need to speak about the whole counsel of God, especially when it's appropriate. The second point, his foolish boasts uh, and his, his oaths, uh, Herod Antipas. So the guys, obviously there's alcohol, there's lust, there's partying going on here, and uh, the girl dances before him. He makes this promise to her. She asks for John the Baptist's head on the platter, and he's sorry, it says. He's sorry. Not repentant. He's sorry. Gee, I'm really sorry I have to do this. But I did make an oath, and I have to follow through, right? When we make a mistake in life, when we really screw up, do we just say, hey, I'm sorry, but fix the problem? You see, Pontius Pilate did the same thing. He said, bring me some water. I washed my hands of this man. Well, you're still having him crucified. You know what I'm saying? So Pontius Pilate washes his hands. Herod says, it's out of my hands. I did make a promise. Are we that weak? We shouldn't be. You know, there's plenty of times I've had to say I'm sorry and fix the problem. And unfortunately, I think that in my future, there'll be plenty more times that I have to continue to do that. So when we make a mistake, when we really mess up, do we have the character enough to fix it and not just say, I'm sorry, but it's out of my hands? There may be norms of society. There may be norms of our peer groups. There may be norms of people in our church. And we say, well, other people are doing it, so it must be okay. What does God's word say? 
The third point, all that glitters isn't gold. I'm sure you've heard that. If you look at Herod's life, here's a guy who pretty much climbed to the top. He was a leader. If you look at history, he had a treasury, he had armies under him, but he had no character. So, listen, all of us in our fields, uh, whatever we do, whatever we're good at, don't we all want to excel? Don't we all want to exceed? Do some of us want to be the CEOs of our company or a supervisor? Sure. But if we miss the character aspect, we make a big mistake. Herod had the power, Herod had the position, but he didn't have the character. And this is what history tells us about Herod Antipas. He had some military campaigns that were failed. His armies had lost uh, to the Arabs at the time. Uh, He went to his wife, again, put him up to go into the emperor Caligula and said, tell him that you should be made a king officially. So he goes up and apparently there's some type of power struggle before he gets there. And Caligula thinks he's a traitor before he even gets there. Although Herod came up with all this money to bribe him. And he takes away his position and banishes him to Gaul. So that's the end of Herod Antipas' life. Who wants to be there? (laughs) Not me. As quickly as he rose to the top, is as quickly as he fell. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning, be thrown down to the earth. God, he wasn't going to be in his presence uh, all the time anymore. The fourth point, which may hit home to some of you, that person right now who has power over you, could be a boss, could be a family member, could be financial power, some type of power over you. And they enjoy having that power over you. They may be cruel, vindictive, whatever the case may be. Pray for them, because it's not going to last forever. God will not allow that to last forever. Right? Verse 13. But when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. So Jesus was related to John. We know that. The Bible tells us that. He loved John. They were partners in ministry. But now John's gone, and Jesus needs a little alone time. He was fully God and fully man. He cried in the Bible. He wept. His feelings were hurt. He felt betrayed at times. And here he loses a loved one who's a partner in ministry. So he goes, and he just needs a little alone time. But what happens? The multitudes follow him. And they throng him. And what does he say? Can't you guys see I need a little alone time? You guys are like paparazzi. What's going on here? No, of course not. He doesn't do that. Many would. Many think very highly of themselves in ministry and they can't be bothered. But not Jesus. Notwithstanding his personal uh, concerns, he still ministered to them. Now, I will tell you that uh, there are many men of God, many pastors that have, I've read their stories and it blows me away. Uh, Greg Laurie, evangelist, pastor, his son died in a horrible accident. That Sunday, he was back in the pulpit. He said, number one, I still believe, and there's no place I'd rather be than with my brothers and sisters and preaching the word. It's never happened to me, and I hope that I would respond the same way if, God forbid, that did happen. You know, notwithstanding their own personal needs, they still ministered. it's, It's a special type of person. It isn't just men. I think of my wife. You know, she does the Tuesday women's Bible study. She is, some of you are smiling. She does the Saturday morning devotion. She blesses the ladies, and she's there all the time. I've seen loved ones pass in her life, whether it's her birthday, uh, any situation. My wife is always there. 
always there. If you don't see her, pray for her because probably a good reason why she's not there. That's just a high level of commitment. You know, I see a very selfless, selfless woman. But you know what? Jesus was the best example of that. We look to Jesus. What did Jesus do? How do I emulate that? Again, are we reflecting Christ in all his mannerisms and characteristics? And if we find that difficult to do, we need to pray for more of the Holy Spirit because that's the only way that we can do it. It's not humanly possible. 15. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Now, here's a problem. So he starts to minister. Of course, Jesus is teaching. No doubt Jesus does some healings. Uh, He's very merciful and compassionate. But as usual, the multitudes were so... It's funny, I remember the woman at the well. She goes to draw water. She's thirsty. She starts having a conversation with Jesus. She's so filled with spiritual water, you know, spiritually, that she leaves her empty water pot and goes tell everyone she forgot that she was thirsty. You know what I'm saying? So these people, you know, they're hungry, whatever the case may be, and, and there is a concern about their physical needs. Remember, back then, usually at a, deser- a deserted place, they couldn't just jump in the church van and head over to Taco Bell. You know what I'm saying? I think of that. I think of chalupas. Boy, those things are good. <laughs> that little dog. Anyway, so here's the disciples' solution to the problem. Send them away. Hopefully they make it back home or they make it to uh, somewhere else and they make it to a well and they're okay. That's their solution. It goes on, verse 16. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. So here's the challenge. You give them something to eat. Solve the problem. I tell you, I'm always blessed by my leaders that come to me with different problems, you know, different issues, and they already have the answer for me. Pastor Joe, this is the problem. This is what happened, and I think this is how we should handle that. That is a mark of a good leader. That is awesome. I may tweak the plan here and there or just let it go as it stands, but I just love the fact to have leaders. That's a good test of leadership, to have some type of solution to the problem, not just throw problems out without solutions. So, of course, they find some food. Uh, In John 6, we see more of the discussion with Jesus and his disciples about this issue, Uh, but they bring the the food to the Lord. And what does he do with it? Well, the disciples at this time must be thinking, and for those of you who know the scripture, he does a great miracle and he multiplies the food. They must be thinking, boy, this is impossible. Look at all these people here. How are we going to do this? However, You may look at your own life and say, wow, there's some impossible things in my life that have to be dealt with. What is it right now that you're going through that seems impossible? That seems, Lord, (laughs) I got a few fish and a few loaves. There's nothing I can do with this. How is the Lord stretching you in your life? You know, I want to encourage you. Do we want to just get out of our problem? And, And listen, that's the flesh. When there's a problem in my life, I'm like, Lord, just deliver me. Or do we want to go through the problem with the Lord and have him teach us something? When there's a nagging problem in my life, I say, all right, Lord, okay, you got my attention. What is it you're trying to show me? Right? That's important. Are we desiring our character to be built in the process? There was a story that I read, or actually a video that I saw, uh, he was a, this kid, you can actually search engine, teenager blind echolocation. You'll be blown away by the video. 
He's, uh, at, at, I think, three or four years old. He had some type of cancer, this little boy, and his eye, his, they were in his eyeballs, and the doctors, to save his brain, had to remove the, the eyes. So the, the boy woke up, and boy, his mother was such a strong woman. She, he said, Mommy, I can't see. And she said, But honey, you have other senses that you can work with. So fast forward now, this guy's a, kid's a teenager, and he walks down the road, and he goes, He clicks. That's called echolocation. Bats use it, right? What happens is you, you send out the signal, the sound signal, and, and there's, there's waves of a sound signal, and depending on uh, size, speed, and size, speed, and distance, because it also works that way in police radar, depending on how the, the signal comes back to the ear, the waves are compressed or they're expanded, uh, and the frequency changes, and you can tell distance. It's a teenager. He, came, he just came up with this thing. So look at the challenges in this little boy's life, and he overcame. I was, I'm wondering if he's a person of faith, but it's amazing. I looked at this, and the, the news, the reporter was putting things in his way, like he was walking down the street like a garbage pail, and the kid would click and tell him what was in his way, and he'd go around it. He was skateboarding and riding a bicycle blind. So after I saw that, I said, okay, Lord, I have no right to complain about anything. <laughs> it really gives you a perspective check, doesn't it? But check it out, it's pretty good. Verse 19, then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled and they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten uh, were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So the solution, anybody ever been in the catering business? <laughs> you know, if you got 5,000 men and, and women and children, it could be 15 to 20,000 people. Imagine feeding that many people, even if you're in the catering business. I mean, there's truckloads of food. But this is God we're talking about. He didn't need the truckloads or the ovens. Uh, he just took care of it. In verses 20 through 21, this blows me away. They ate, they were filled there were leftovers, and probably there were more leftovers than what they started with. You see, this is the God that we serve. He is the God of abundance and overflow. And you know what? It warms his heart when, he, when we believe that he can do those things. When we, when we say, Lord, I know that this is a, a, an impossible situation, but I know your hand is in this. Right? Was it, it was a King Hezekiah who the armies were surrounding them. And he rolled out the, in front of the Lord, he rolled out the threats that I believe was this Assyrian army was making towards him. God, there's nothing we can do. These guys are plentiful and they're surrounding us. And they've, they've taken, they've conquered every other uh, people group before, but these are the threats they're making about you. Lord, you deal with it. And God did. God did. He, he brought them through it. So do we believe in God's overflow and abundance? We have to believe in that. It takes faith, brothers and sisters, even against all empirical uh, standards that are staring you in the face to the contrary, then God can work even greater. Verse 22, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there. 
But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And we spoke about the size of the Sea of Galilee and the way the, the mountain ranges were and the high pressure versus low pressure and how quickly those waves could be stirred up. What an incredible storm that could uh, develop on the water. So the problem that there's another storm on the sea and the disciples are straining to row, as the other Gospels put it. Verse 25. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So the challenge is the storm again, the sea again, right? Difficulties with keeping the boat afloat. And probably some leftover superstitions they might have had. Remember, it took a while for the disciples to really be filled with the Holy Spirit and to really do great things uh, in the power of the Lord. They said to him, it is a ghost. The word in the Greek is phantasma, where we get in the English phantasm. Remember, a lot of these seafaring people, even though these guys were the disciples, maybe there was a little bit of, gee, this is unusual. I've never seen this before. Where's Jesus? And who's that guy in the middle of the water? Right? So this is the, the problem that they're dealing with. But I would ask you this morning, how many of you are in the boat? How many of you feel like you're in the boat right now in your life? Maybe it provided some security. Maybe the attitude of the other 11 disciples is, well, the boat's rocking, we're taking on water, but it's better than being out there. But Peter had the courage to get out of the boat. And some of you may be challenged by the Lord. He may be bidding you come, and you may ask him, Lord, bid me come to you. Bid me come. Is this what you want from me, Lord? Okay, in a step of faith, I'm willing to do this. Some of you may be in that position today. And you may be saying, this is impossible. But again, that's right, it is impossible. But God is a God of big things. Now, I would say this, that it doesn't take much to make me seasick. <laughs> I remember even as a kid, we had a relative who had a boat and kind of like the boat, and I, I like to go fishing because I like fish, but when we stopped, and we were doing this for a while, uh, it, it was enough. But you got to picture the situation, and, and I like to really get down and, and understand what's going on at the time. So they're in the boat together. There's confusion. It's got to be loud. You ever been in a storm? You've got the rain. You've got the wind. You've got uh, the water splashing your face. They're probably getting soaked. It, it's, it's in the fourth watch of the night. It's probably cold out. Right? Some of them are, are probably bailing water. You know, they're throwing it out. And, and you know, the boat is up and down and the surf is tossing them. And all of a sudden they see in the distance the Lord. And it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't fit with their scenario. So they, maybe it's a ghost. And I could picture in my mind, and probably he didn't even get wet, but I could picture the Lord coming close to them. And all you can hear if you listen closely was... His feet just walking on the water towards them, mind blowing. And I have to tell you that if you're in the boat 
and you're focusing on the waves, and you're focusing on the storm, and you're focusing on the rocking, and you're focusing on the other other 11 disciples in the boat, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You need to focus on the Lord. You understand? No matter what they were focusing on was going to cause them problems until they focused on the Lord. And even when Peter took his gaze off of the Lord, he started to sink and needed to get his attention again. So in our lives, if we focus on our circumstances, we're going to be in the same trouble as the disciples were. And if we take our eyes off of the Lord, we're going to start to sink. Where is our faith and our trust? And I love to, I love to just, and I'm not putting the Lord to the test. We have to be careful of this. Do we do foolish things just so the Lord saves us? No. I'm going to jump off this bridge and Psalm 91 says that I'm not even going to get hurt. It's probably not a good idea, you know. But just having that faith and trust in the Lord that he can do anything. I remember um, years ago, uh, I had a board member. He's not with us anymore. And we, I had the stirring. I felt the Lord was going to give us a building. We had looked and looked and looked, and I was doing it my own strength. And I said, you know what, Lord, it's up to you. And then I believed that he was stirring me. And I said to the board member, we have to go to the landlord and get out of the lease in, in, in our office because um, there's no way we can get a building and pay the lease at the same time. It's going to destroy us. So being a person who was of the business world, he said, Pastor Joe, with all due respect, you don't understand how the corporate world works. I said, you're right, but I know how my God works. I said, so you're coming with me, and we're going to see the landlord. So he went with me reluctantly. We sat down with the landlord. By the end of the conversation, not only did he let us out of the lease, we didn't pay any penalties, and we didn't have to pay for the, for the rest of the lease, which was the majority. And he, he uh, was happy for us. So we came out of the office, and the board member was shaking his head, and I said, you need to have more faith. Simple things like that. The corporate world, the economy was tanking. They needed people to fill that space. Certainly, with, with all rights, they could have said to us, not being mean, sure, you can leave, but you've got to pay until the lease is up or until we find another renter. But they, he didn't do that. I just believed that God was going to do it, and he did it. Because I will tell you that we have no right to preach the gospel if we don't believe that our God can do amazing things, because the gospel is an amazing thing. And if we don't believe it in our hearts, then why are we preaching it? Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe on him. Yes, the whole world tomorrow at once could do it. Do you believe that? I believe it. And he would give them entrance into his kingdom. So we need to believe. And there's going to come a point, Christian, in your life where God is going to test your faith He's going to want to know if you're going to step out of that boat and focus on him, right? Because if you are focused on him and he bids you come, you can walk on water. Amen? Amen. All right. I would say this, that, look, some people look at Peter and say, well, he's sunk. However, there was 11 other guys still in the boat. So give Peter a little bit of credit. At least he had the courage to get out and walk. The other ones were watching him to see what would happen, right? Verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. And be of good cheer, being an emphatic statement in the Greek. Jesus literally says, number one, have courage. Based on what? You ever hear some say, okay, we're talking about faith. You ever hear some say, just have faith. Okay, I just have faith. 
Well, what do you have faith in? Do we have faith in faith? Is faith like a battery meter that, you know, we look down and we could see it's almost fully charged and we can do something? No. We have faith in him. So when he says, take courage, be of good cheer, it's based on him. You know what it's based on? His next phrase, it is I, or ego a me, or I am. Why is that important? Take courage, I am, do not be afraid. Does that make any sense? If you understand Greek, ego a me is very emphatic. He, he's saying, I am. Now, I am comes from Exodus 3.14, where Moses asked the Lord, you know, he's just getting to know God. Who are you? Who should I tell them is, is telling us that we need to leave Egypt? He said, I am. That's all you need to know. Go tell him. <laughs> do what I asked you to do. Jesus is claiming to be God. So get your little notebook out and, and all those folks that come to you and call themselves Christians and says, but Jesus never claimed to be God. Here's another check mark. I am. Be of good courage. Do not be afraid. Because Jesus has the power over the storms in your life. Jesus has the power over the gravity that's pulling you down. Jesus has the power over anything that's giving you a hard time. And you know why I think that Jesus walked on water? Because the water was the very thing that the disciples feared at the time. The water had the ability to capsize them. The water had the ability to get into their lungs and drown them and kill them. And what Jesus showed was he had dominion over that water. You know, even in the Middle East today, if you touch something with the bottom of your feet, it's considered an insult or power. In the Old Testament, when a conquering king would reign over the defeated armies, he would go up to the person, they would hold the person down, and he would put his foot on their neck. That's it, to, to show he had dominion over that person. I've conquered you. Jesus conquers everything that can give you trouble in this world, and you have to believe that. It's about faith. Verse 31. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So the solution, faith, trust. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things th through Christ who strengthens me. Can you say that with me now? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Boy, that was good. Because I was going to say, now say it like you mean it, but you did it the first time, you know? Sometimes in the Christian community, we can get caught up in saying, I love you, or I'll call you, or I'm concerned about you, but do we really mean it? Is it really coming from the heart? When we say, I can do all things through Christ, all things, bar none, through Christ who strengthens me, do we believe it? When we say it, are there just words that flow? Listen, I can memorize stuff. I talk in my sleep sometimes, my wife tells me. Doesn't mean I mean what I'm saying, it just comes out. It's just the backflushing of my brain for all this stimuli that I took in during the day. When we say this, do we mean it with our heart? And I just want to encourage you with something else, because some of you this morning are in the boat, and you're in the storm. And you know what? I can't promise you next week the storm will be over. I don't know what the Lord's doing in your life. But I would say this, and, and listen, it's human nature to do this. Sometimes when things happen to us, we make the assumption that God is mad at us or that he's forgotten about us. Look at it as an opportunity to have your character, your faith, and your trust built up this morning. Don't look at it as a punishment. 
He may be trying to purify you. Maybe you're going through it because he really thinks that highly of you, that he can use you when you go through the situation. Maybe there's some things that he's got to slough off of you so that he can use you in a mighty way. So don't look at it as a punishment. Verse 34. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out all in that surrounding region, brought to him all who were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. So, notwithstanding the Lord's own personal trials, he was undeterred because he was, a, he was committed to people. And then my question to us is, are we committed to him? Now, Jesus and John the Baptist could have got together over lunch and said, listen, this martyr stuff is for the birds, you know. Um, why don't we open up a business? You know, I can do miracles. We could live to a ripe old age and, and do well for ourselves. You know, build up a 401k and, and just, you know, uh, vacation in the islands for our retirement. They could have done that, but they didn't. They knew what was awaiting them. And you know why they went? Because they were committed to you and you and you and me. Jesus was committed to me, and that's why he went to the cross. I love that about my Lord. So my question is, believers, are we making a commitment to him? Very interesting world out there, isn't it? I mean, it's coming close to home. A country's going bankrupt. You saw hundreds of people wiped out in the South. Uh, you know, we're not immune from all the things that are happening overseas. We're not immune from it. There may be things happening in your own personal lives. You know, I deal with families all the time where their, their kids are getting involved with drugs. It is rampant. It's destroying our, our youth. There's a lot of challenges that we face here. All right? So, but what are we doing? Are we numbing ourselves with just recreation all the time or money or things of that, that, that you know, pleasures or whatever of the flesh? Or are we committed to our Lord? If there's any time that uh, would be great if, if, if he could use us, it would be now. There's a world that's dying without hope. You hear about it every day. Are we going to be a part of the solution? Are we going to be a part of being just committed to ourselves? I would just say this. You know, Pastor Anthony, when he uh, did the message on Resurrection Sunday, he said something to the effect of that the resurrection should not just be a once, uh, you know, a seasonal thing. It should be something that we hide in our hearts every day of our lives. Because of the resurrection, it should uh, really govern our behaviors and our actions and our commitment levels every single day. I'm, you know, I, listen, don't get too mad at me, but I'm not a real big fan of the holiday seasons because of the commercialism and the, you know, I see it, especially in parking lots and malls. People are downright nasty, you know, honking at each other and, giving signs to each other, and it's not good. You know, everyone's stressed out. They're in a hurry to get that last sale, and, you know, I saw it first. No, I, it, the crazy things, people get trampled in, in, you know, department stores and stuff because everyone's out for themselves. The resurrection should be an everyday thing in our life. So what I want to leave you with this is ask yourself, am I committed to the Lord? If I'm not, what's holding me back? And you know what? Just ask the Lord. Help me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me more of the Holy Spirit. And help me to have a more committed attitude towards you. Because remember, if, if you commit to your spouse and that spouse doesn't commit to you, that's a bad, that's a bad relationship. 
Both have to be committed to each other. God has already proven that he's committed to us. We need to commit to him as well. Let's pray.